talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Yesterday, it was wet snow. Tomorrow, it's double-digit temperatures. Don't bring in the hibachi just yet. Here's Scott Thompson! Who doesn't love the hibachi? Everybody flick your bit for the hibachi. Whatever happened to those? They still have them around? Well, do you know what a hibachi is? I do know what a hibachi is. I've seen one in a museum. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, what's a hibachi, Well, Well, it's like a little uh, enclosed, um, kind of like your barbecue, but you almost made a little building deal out of it, correct? <clears throat> no, no I'm wrong. Not closed in. Clo- no, hibachi is not closed in. It's open. Uh, hibachi's maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know, a foot and a half uh, long, maybe two feet, maybe like two shoe boxes put oh. together, and then uh, you know about half as wide, and 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 really they're they're so small that yeah, I could never get them to light because you had to put like th- six things of charcoal in each one, in each section, so they were kind of hard to light, and uh, and then you know you could uh, there was enough to do maybe I don't know two steaks two or four burgers on it maybe that was about it but yeah they were big in the 70s and then the hibachi kind of went away uh, the went the went, went the way of the dodo bird and then of course the giant broil master king grill came out and the rest is history i think you see some people in parks with them the odd time but uh, yeah there you go the history of the hibachi what a way to open up the Hamilton today. Good afternoon. It is 310. I'm Scott Thompson. Willerskin on the board. Desperately looking through Wikipedia now to find out exactly what the truth is about the hibachi. Can you get us some history on the hibachi? That would be kind of fun. Uh, also, Will's like, yeah, like I got time for that. That's exactly what I need to do right now is I'm getting your show ready. I think- now go off on a wild goose chase about a hibachi. On one hand, it would be a nice follow-up to Jay McQueen's grapple segment the other week. And is informative, really. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll find out more. On See, right now, everybody's going, oh, hibachi. Honey, look, he's talking about the hibachi. Remember when you and I used to play bocce ball and then have a hibachi? Is that even related? All right. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note if you know the history of the hibachi. Uh, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. We would love to hear from you. we got another jam-packed show coming up, including uh, Russia. What the hell is going on with Russia? So there's, I know, that's what I said. So anyway, um, you know, there's like tons of crap flying around in space. Everyone's got a space station up there except, you know, Petro-Canada. And, uh, you know, uh, China's got one. Uh, the international space stations up there for everybody else but China and and Russia I think there's even a couple of uh, cosmonauts in the international space station right now and then Russia decides they're going to send up a rocket and blow up an old satellite scattering like tons of space crap all over the uh, the universe including putting the international space station with two of their astronauts on it at risk Nice. What the heck, Doc? Stay low. 
yeah, I don't know. We, we, we may be laughing now, Will, but you might not be far off. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, the Alan Carswell Chair for Public Understanding of Astronomy, Professor York University, with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Welcome to be Sorry, glad to be here. Not welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> so what happened here, Paul? Were we expecting this at all? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, nobody was given forewarning of it. Undoubtedly, Roscosmos was, uh, although they've been very, very quiet on the whole affair. But no, this was a big surprise. And, you know, words like sad, uh, unbelievable, disrespectful. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of words I could use that I can still say on radio. But there's a few others that I would like to use that I won't. So why would they do this? Obviously, this created a certain amount of danger because it made those in the International Space Station take cover, including two of their own cosmonauts. It's created a hazard in space, and it's going to be there for years. I mean, I, in, in 2021, it's, it's almost beyond belief that uh, the, the, the Russians would go ahead and do this. There has been so much bad publicity associated with space debris, and here they are creating somewhere between 1,500 and 15,000 pieces of debris, literally in the corridor where the International Space Station and the Chinese Space Station are flying. Low Earth orbit is getting crowded up there, and the last thing we need is thousands of projectiles potentially damaging you know, human satellites, uh, sorry, human spacecraft or satellites. It's, it's beyond belief. <laughs> it really is. So what is their purpose for blowing this thing up? <laughs> to show that they can do it, as far as is I that, can tell, is about the yeah. only thing. Although, you know, i, I got to wonder whether or not this is all a bigger political ploy that sort of says, you know, we want out of the International Space Station. This is a really good way to rile up the Americans, rile up uh, the Europeans, and for Russia to step away from the ISS. It's something that they keep mooting that they want to do. Maybe this is an excuse. That, that's the only logic I can come up with. They know how to take out satellites. There is no point taking out a satellite like this. Uh, it just creates debris, which is a hazard for all spacefaring nations. So it, it's really hard to find a good logical rationale for why they did it. Why do they want out of the International Space Station? Oh, variety of reasons. Uh, finance is one. Uh, the Roscosmos is a little financially strapped. Secondly, they're a little annoyed with the Artemis Accords going back to the moon, uh, being principally led by NASA. They've openly suggested that they want to start working more closely with the Chinese, and of course, doing that immediately alienates NASA. So, you know, again, a little bit of politics, a little bit of uh, uh, ideology. But it's no secret that Russia is waning on its interest with the International Space Station. So how is China viewing this? <laughs> They're being very, very quiet. <laughs> I've not seen an official response or even an unofficial response from them. I'd love them to, have con to, to go ahead and condemn what uh, the Russian Space Federation has done. I doubt they will do that. I'm sure they'll play it a whole lot more low-key because, as I said, they're courting the Russians these days. But every single spacefaring nation has got to be alarmed by this type of indiscriminate action. You know, we've often, you and I, spoken about our stewardship of the sea and our stewardship of space being mm. somewhat similar in terms of we all have to live with that particular location. We should all be trying to do our utmost to protect that environmental situation. We should be learning from what we didn't do right in the oceans of the world and yeah. do it better in space. And here we are 
creating this hazard in space. So, it's, so uh, it's obviously we. We've talked about China doing their own international or their own space station. So, does it endanger their space station in any way? Yes, this debris is not yeah. that far off of the same corridor that the ISS is located in. Uh, most of the action uh, these days for, uh, for human vehicles happens in low Earth orbit, sort of the, the sort of three, four, five hundred kilometer type altitude above the surface of the Earth. This uh, particular uh, satellite that was destroyed uh, is 540. And because it gets destroyed, the particles fly off in all directions, including down into the corridor. Uh, mm. And, of course, depending upon the various trajectories, this cloud of debris will slowly spread. Some of it is going to eventually deorbit two, three, four years from now. But there's a lot more of this stuff that is not going to deorbit anytime soon and is going to fly through this corridor where ISS, where the Chinese space station is located, where, in fact, we are sending you know, space tourist flights like Inspiration4. It's all in that same general corridor. Mm. Uh, what do you think? We've only got a few seconds left. What do you think is going to come out of this? Anything? Uh, no. <laughs> Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of posturing. There's going to be a lot of rhetoric flown, uh, thrown around. It's going to become intensely political, but there's not much anybody can do. Every spacefaring nation is quite independent in this regard. Paul Delaney with us, uh, York University astronomy professor, talking about Russia taking one of its own satellites and creating more of a problem. Paul, uh, fascinating stuff. Thanks again. Be well. Yep. Take care, Scott. Stephen Del Duca. Has uh, released his parties. Uh, going to give us a $75 tax credit for winter tires. Wasn't it earlier on the week they're going to give free licenses to the seniors or something? How is this solving the world's problems? How is this creating jobs? How is this just not populist politics? Yeah, we're just giving you free crap. You know, like, is anybody who isn't buying snow tires going to go now buy them because they got a $75 credit? No. But if I'm going to buy snow tires, hey, I got a $75 credit. What is this doing? What does this do to help anything? Does this does this put is this create more jobs? Does this what, what does this do? Other than oh yeah, oh, great, more free stuff. Unbelievable. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine on the board. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred CHML dot com, and the phone lines are always open nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred on your cell. All right. Have you uh, been to the gas pump or checked your home heating bill? Or if you uh, use propane, uh, you know what we're talking about. Uh, a confluence of issues such as rising inflation, the state of the Canadian dollar increases to the carbon tax and the clean fuel standard could lead uh, to gas prices getting as high as $2 a liter before we are out of this winter. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Patrick DeHan is with us, head of petroleum analysis with Gas Buddy, and is with us now. Patrick, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. We are, Patrick, we are certainly seeing more and more concern about climate change. We just finished the COP26 and, and all of that went there. But it, it seems whenever we have these conferences, the only thing that comes out of them is that you and I have to pay more. We have to give our governments more money. Uh, are, are we seeing the return on this? <laughs> I would say most certainly not. Uh, but I, isn't that what government is infamous for, is taxing uh, you know, and under the guise of perhaps a transition and then just digesting the tax money and raising taxes further. 
So we're seeing gas prices creep up a buck forty, and we remember the beginning of the pandemic. I think they were down below uh, ninety nine cents a liter and such. Are we consuming more? Are we producing less? Why are we where we are? Well, that's both of those. Uh, we are consuming far more than a year ago, as you mentioned. Uh, last year we were under a buck a liter back down to 96 cents a liter, double digits. Uh, life was good, uh, at least when it came to filling up. Of course, last year there were a lot of shutdowns and closures as well, but that has segued into a 2021 where demand has rebounded significantly. The problem is that oil production globally uh, has not followed. And part of the reason is that last year was an abysmal year. Oil companies uh, saw losses of, of over $50 billion collectively. Uh, and so I think at this point, uh, they're not in any hurry to increase production, though we have started to see increases in production. Uh, it hasn't amounted uh, to as much as the increase in demand. I'm not here to debate climate change. Obviously, the climate is changing. Um, but I remember having environmentalists on during uh, the early stages of this pandemic, and they said, look, uh, demand's dropped. Uh, the world's just not interested in this anymore. And and they thought there would be some sort of pivot when it came back, although I'm not sure what the alternative was going to be. Um, has demand come back? Is de- is Has demand dropped? Oh, it's absolutely come back. Uh, we are very close to pre-COVID levels for gasoline consumption uh, across the board. Now, we have seen a tapering off as temperatures have cooled. That's not a surprise. That's something that is predictable a seasonal decline of of a couple percentage points. But keep in mind, we are far higher, in some cases 40 to 50% higher uh, gasoline demand just compared to a year ago. Uh, Obviously, it's not just gasoline. We're certainly certainly hearing about that with everything that we use to heat our home, including uh, propane prices, which have gone up like 300%. Yeah, this is across the board. Uh, various fuels are, are coming in uh, much pricier. Uh, natural gas, propane, heating oil, uh, they're all higher. And, and you know, I, to your point, I don't think anyone would disagree that the transition is coming. But I, I think the difference here is that politicians uh, don't have a good plan for making that transition happen quicker. We're, we're kind of making the jump without having a, a solid transit, uh, transitory plan here. Everyone wants to ditch fossil fuels when there's not a good solution to wake up tomorrow and to be able to make some sort of transition, and that's where the price increases are coming along. There's been a lot of d- divestment of fossil fuels companies, but there's not a solid plan for infrastructure and for making a transition. It seems that, and we noticed this out of uh, out of COP twenty six, that a lot everybody's on the same page as to what the problem is, but they're shooting off in in, in like uh, twenty or thirty different directions in how you actually address this. And I was talking to uh, a couple of environmentalists over the course of that summit, and and I said, why don't we just focus on like everybody focus on one thing, and the one thing that's the worst, that's the biggest polluter is coal. So why don't we do more? just to try to eliminate that because that would solve a lot of the problem uh and and the and the uh person i was talking to said uh too late for that uh we can't you know we can't uh transition off a coal like that and and use uh other uh sources because it's too late we gotta you know we gotta scrap that so it's like you can't get people off coal yet you're gonna get them off everything It, it seems that as you said we don't have 
a consistent plan other than shut it off. And, and that's not a solution. Or tax the heck out of it. Uh, and that's yeah. not a solution either. Is, is, you know, I think at least when it comes to heating homes, there's been a lot uh, said that we can transit from, say, natural gas, propane to heat pumps, right? Thermal. But these things aren't free. And so you're going from something that is affordable um, and, and making it less affordable through taxation. At the same time, you're trying to push people to things that are 5, 10, 15 times more expensive. That's just not feasible. So in the interim, you're taxing the heck out of something that is currently reliable and, and affordable, making it less affordable, but you're not bringing in an affordable idea to the table. Hmm. Patrick Tahan with us, head of petroleum analysis with Gas Buddy. Patrick, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Take good care. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It's like a cage match in here. Uh, it is 437. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine is on the board. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks out of the newsroom and around the big round table uh, getting uh, ready for another free-for-all, as we call it. Uh, good afternoon, table. Good to have you all here. Hope you're doing well on this Tuesday. Yes, everything's good. All right, there you go. Let's start with the poll question of the day. Uh, we are seeing cases go up a bit, although today uh, back down to 481. So I guess hovering in and around where we are. Uh, and the good news is hospital uh, ICUs are staying relatively stable, although it is a concern with modeling. Should the city reinstate capacity limits? The poll question of the day. Ted, your thoughts? Do we go backwards? No, I don't think so because the government, uh, the uh, businesses have fought too hard now to get back to wherever they are and they're, they're just in many cases, just starting to gain momentum and get back to the way it was. So putting them back, I really don't think that's the answer. I would think by now people would know. <laughs> you would think that people would know what they have to do, and the government really shouldn't be doing that. I, I and think. at the end of the day, more and more of us are getting vaccinated every single day, So, and, and we're going to see the kids eventually. So uh, as we see more and more vaccinated, uh, I'm not sure this is the answer. What are your thoughts, Diana? Yeah, I agree. I don't think we need to go backwards. I think we just need to keep pushing forward keep pushing the vaccines and and just uh you know keep those businesses open because uh, if we start going backwards it's just going to be real bad once again well man are we there yet what do we do uh gosh i don't know i'm a little bit squeamish there's a bit of me that you know that that wants to throw on that that parking brake that dougie's talked about but i don't think we are quite there yet and i think as ted said and diana touched on as well there's other things people can be doing that they already know they should be doing that we can keep doing at this time and that's much better than throwing the wrench at the small businesses have you got your mask on right now (laughs) (laughs) all right uh here's another uh interesting situation uh we certainly know how the opioid crisis has uh it's taken off during this pandemic uh it has just gotten worse um the chatter always talks to uh, goes to safe injection site locations and such uh the city has received letters of opposition to an east hamilton safe injection site um more nimbyism we don't want it in our neighborhood but that being said i'm sure these facilities go up in the neighborhoods that need them not the ones that don't are you surprised we're still fighting over this when probably across the road there's a cannabis shop ted well i, I it was interesting because a clip I, I just played at 4 30 the catholic school board is uh throwing up uh, their hands asking some questions and i'm not sure the exact old restaurant that it is in the barton sherman area but if it's what i think it is then yes there is a school but it's kitty corner uh, of a uh, pretty it's not close, yeah. put put it that way. So um, 
again, the term is safe injection. Done properly, which it has been in the past, then I really don't see the problem. And I really think the Catholic board uh, really... Um, and I'm a Catholic uh, ratepayer, so I, you know, I think I have the right to say this. I think they really respectfully need to back off on this one. And you know, if you move it like a couple of blocks one direction or the other, does that really solve the issue, Diana? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to agree here uh, with Ted. I mean, uh, this is something that I think is needed. I don't think we can turn a blind eye to this. I mean. Yeah. I think the Catholic school board has enough issues. They don't need to put their nose in this. I'm just going to mm. come right out and say that. Yep. Uh, you know, so I think they need to deal with some stuff on their that they're they need to deal with. Um, but um, I don't see it causing a problem. I understand why people might have some hesitation about it. But I mean, you know. And, and if people say, well, cannabis shops, I mean, cannabis is, is, is cannabis. I mean, we're talking about opi- people injecting opioids yeah, here, you right? Can't, so, yeah, you can't. Opioids mean, and cannabis. I don't mean to draw the comparison yeah, yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. But what I, I know a lot of critics will say that. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're preventing, you know, deaths essentially by opening these safe injection sites. Do you think we become more empathetic towards this cause because of a pandemic? Whoever wants to answer this. I hope so. Uh, I, I think there's been a, some increase. Because there's certainly, yeah. there's certainly more attention being paid to this problem. And and again, through the whole pandemic, mental health has been an issue. So maybe are, are we becoming more empathetic? I think so. I think as the conversation around mental health and addictions uh, really starts to go more in depth with more people being open, I think, you know, we're starting to really realize like, you know, that it's not just someone else's issue. There's somebody that we all, you know, we all know someone who yeah. has, you know, some mental health issue or addictions issue that's that's severely impacted their life. And I, I think that as a whole, I think we are becoming more empathetic. I'd like to think that we are. All right. Uh, speaking of empathy, 70 percent uh, said in a recent Angus Reid poll, if you're not vaccinated, you're fired. Um, I, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I encourage everybody to get fully vaccinated. Everybody in the family is fully vaccinated. But I would really emphasize that education has gotten us to where we are with almost 90 percent of those eligible vaccinated do we need to go in this direction are we are we understanding the implications of saying that because nothing is mandatory in in canada we've talked about this before you'll always get a small percentage who can't for whatever reason get it then you'll get another small percentage who will never get vaccinated we've 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 developed a privileged system here where if you're vaccinated you get to do stuff if you don't you're not but is this to see 70 percent say you're fired if you don't get it uh anybody want to jump in ted two points a i am tired of hearing people say we need more education no we don't it's been 20 (laughs) bloody months of this thing if you don't know what's going on with a vaccination by now then you obviously don't want to listen b i've said it before i'll say it again your rights, and I'm talking generally here, your rights do not supersede what the government is saying. This is a part of your job description. If you don't want to get the shot, you should be fired. End of story. I don't want to hear people, well, you know, the government. No. Why should I come to work and have you put me at danger because you're being obtuse? 
<laughs> Ken, uh, what if that person is doing a move to a different part of the company? And again, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm, I'm not, but but I have a hard time when we move from a democracy where uh, we do have choice. And we've, you know, education isn't going to convince that 5% that's never going to get vaccinated. But again, we, we live in a, in a graduated privileged system where if you're not vaccinated, you just simply can't do stuff. Um, do we really want to go where like a Chinese communist party, you either get the jab or you don't get out of your house? Do we want to go that far? That's- I, but I don't think like that that's a good comparison because like if you're living in society, you know, as we are, there's going to be things you got to do. You can't walk around stark naked. I mean, unless mm-hmm. you live on a nudist colony, you got to wear your seatbelt when you're in the car. You got to put the kid in the, the this car seat. Like there's things that we have to do for our safety that some people might not like. Like someone might say, oh, I don't want to wear a seatbelt. It's uncomfortable. It makes me feel restricted. Well, you got to do it. You just got to do then it. They get, but then they get fined if they don't. I mean, there's always repercussions to those things. Yes, and, exactly. And- well, Well, I think in this case, and I mean, it's a very complex issue, but in this case, the repercussion, at least as far as a private industry or a business goes, they they have, I suppose, the right to fire employees and say, well, no, you're not safe. Now, I do think it should be, you said graduate, it should be gradual. There can be steps in some cases where people could be like, all right, you're you're working from home or you're working in the sub-basement. You have to be in this hazmat suit, whatever the deal is, because we do need an empathetic approach. Ted said everyone's reached the point. Where they need, where they should be educated, but the problem right now is we've become too cold in the way we interact with each other. Everything is a hard wall. Hey, it's me versus you, rather than trying to meld, trying to educate through melding and understanding and all that hippie stuff I've gotten into during the pandemic. Yeah, and I'm just gonna echo (laughs) hippie stuff. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Well, but I just want to echo what Will was saying. But I feel like a lot of times, and I've been guilty about this too, is that instantaneously, as soon as someone has concerns or or is a little leery about getting the vaccine, we automatically label them as anti-vaxxers. And I feel like I've done that to people, but... You know, we got to listen more. Uh, obviously, mm. there's people, like you said, that 5% that aren't going to change. But maybe there are people with legitimate concerns and, and, and fears about their own health. And I don't know what those are because I'm double vaxxed and I obviously wasn't worried about that. But m- I think we just got to be more loving toward each other, to quote Will's hippie, uh, hippie statement there. I know we're running late here, but I got to read this email from Danny. Thank you, Ted and Caps. Fire the ones that believe in education. Then it goes on to say Ted should have his own show. He does. It's the health and wellness show. All right. Uh, uh, it th- is- thank you for that. Even- no, honestly, that really makes me feel that my point was well received. It's valid. It's valid. So plug thank your you. Ted. Well, when is your health and wellness show? Uh, Saturday mornings from 7 to 8. There you go. It is 4.45. Thank you, Big Round Table. A very passionate discussion. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, still watching the scenario in Merritt, British Columbia. And, man, it is just uh, tragic to see the pictures and the video 
of what has happened there. I, I, I lived out west uh, for a period of three years in, in Calgary, but would drive to uh, the interior of British Columbia or, or Vancouver, what have you. So I, I've driven this highway uh, many times, or these highways many times, and uh, even at the best of times, they are incredibly treacherous. So you add the situation that has happened with the weather, and uh, it, it's just it's devastating. And now a woman from the lower, ma- uh, lower mainland uh, was killed in the mudslide on Highway 99, Duffy Lake Road, on Monday. Uh, the RCMP in British Columbia have confirmed that the body has been recovered. Uh, and Pemberton Search and Rescue said they are still searching debris fields uh, following the slide that happened north of Pemberton. They say uh, anywhere from five to six, seven cars uh, could have gone off the road uh, there. And they also have one more situation of a, uh, a person that has been reported missing that has not been uh, recovered yet. So um, still a lot of work to be done in uh, British Columbia, especially through the interior in what has been going on uh, in the last uh, day or so. Uh, want to play you a report here, a piece from Anthony Farnell, our global news meteorologist. He was speaking earlier today and tried to sum up what happened with the weather and, 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 and what is going on now system has now uh, left BC. It's been pouring basically since uh, the second half of the weekend. Monday was the day that uh, much of the mudslides and flooding occurred. And this has been uh, a culmination of a, a bunch of factors. One, it has been an extremely wet fall and uh, October, above normal rainfall. November, we've had about one to two months worth of rain and we're only halfway through. So there's all of that. And of course, this last latest system was just that atmospheric river that was directed squarely at southern sections of BC. And of course, with the terrain there, the mountains, the fact there's been so much snow lately, and now the uh, melting of that, it's all combined to to cause this incredible flooding and and yeah those pictures and videos that I've seen uh, it's going to be a while for some of these highways to to open back up. Uh, Global News meteorologist Anthony, Far- uh, Anthony Farnell on what had caused these. Well, in, in some cases, it it had to do with with forest fires, and we got to remember that uh, mm-hmm. places uh, like Linton that uh, just basically disappeared four months ago from the record temperatures and then the fires afterwards. So BC has had natural disasters this year in particular, but uh, you have dry conditions all summer and now just extreme in the other direction, wet. uh, And that's that's the end result that you're seeing. And a lot of this has to do with with a couple of factors. One, La Nina. That's something that happens in the Pacific uh, from time to time. It's cool water down by the equator. But you can get these La Nina jet streams that are intensified and just uh, bring system after system into coastal areas of BC, the Pacific Northwest. And that's what we've seen this year. And although it's quieter for the next few days, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we get right back to these active storms by the end of the month. Anthony Farnell, Global News meteorologist, talking about uh, what has happened in the interior of British Columbia. Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director with Angus Reid. They've got a a recent polling out that says 70% of Canadians support dismissal of employees who refuse COVID-19 vaccinations, according to a new poll from Angus Reid. I'm a little surprised this number's as high as it is. I'm fully vaccinated. The family is, and I encourage everybody to get fully vaccinated. Um, But when we 
we've done through education, we, we've got almost 90% of those eligible. Uh, the kids are coming soon. Uh, I'm surprised we're going down this road. Uh, is it about safety or is it about, I did it, so you have to too. Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director, Angus Reed. He's with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, we're, you know, BC is uh, very much going underwater uh, this week, but I'm in a a, a nice, dry, safe place. So no Yes, ability. you're out from that part of the woods. So, yeah, I, I hope things are going well for you. Um, uh, and, man, it's uh, it's pretty scary what's going on out there now. How is the weather? Um, it's actually been I'm, – I'm in the interior in Kelowna right now, and it's been yeah. pretty good. But I was supposed to drive to Vancouver, and there are really no ways to get to Vancouver now because our highways have all either – That's incredible. – collapsed or have been covered in, in mudslides. So it's – it's a quite a, a, a tense situation. A lot of people sleeping in cars and trying to be transported to different cities and towns because they are uh, trying to escape the the water. So it's it's. Wow. I don't, I've never seen anything like this in BC before, so it's pretty pretty crazy. The rest of the country is thinking about you, Dave, uh, and hopefully things uh, take a turn for the better as far as the weather for you. Um, getting back to this poll, are you surprised at this percentage, 70%? Because I am. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. I think everybody should be vaccinated. Uh, but we've done this through education and, and a privileged vaccination system. And by that, I mean, if you get vaccinated, you get to do more stuff. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't get to do more stuff. Are you surprised at the number at 70 percent? Yeah, it's, um, you know, maybe not surprising for a couple of the different professions that we we had up there. Uh, We asked about uh, just counting up your seven different areas of society where we thought that, you know, people would have opinions about where vaccination is necessary. And there's there's a few where you could kind of anticipate this, you know, onboard airline employees, people are, that's the highest number, 71% saying that the uh, people who work for airlines should have to be vaccinated. But you understand that that's an enclosed space. And yep. that's one of those things where. Plus healthcare, I'm guessing too, right? Possible. Healthcare, another okay. one. Yes. It, the, a little bit lower, uh, but very similar medical professionals at 69% with 28% pushing back and saying they disagree. Um, I, I think that people are really, you know, they, they, it's because it's the medical profession. People are looking at it and saying, yeah. you know, if you don't believe in the, this aspect of healthcare, then maybe, you know, they, they feel less trust and they want those people to really get on board. Um, and we've seen, you know, a, a small number of people in, in BC where it was uh, mandated not go back to work but mm. for the, the vast majority have already done it so i think that's the interesting thing is like you're saying you know if 96 percent of healthcare workers have already been vaccinated then the mandate may be not entirely necessary but it's something that most canadians want to see i can understand with healthcare because it almost seems like it's a conflict of interest either you believe in the medicine or you don't mm-hmm. yeah, uh what about you, other you do see, what you do see it drop off when you're talking about you know, small businesses that you get 41% of people saying, yeah. no, that's, that's too far. Or people who work in the trades or construction, 38% for that. So there are, people are drawing a line and for those more sensitive industries, they, they do have a heightened level of, of wanting to see it. Which makes sense. So do you think this for, for Canadians, is this about safety and looking after everyone's safety or is it a case of, well, I'm vaccinated, so you should be vaccinated too. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you look at the the data, the um, the vaccinated um, that group of Canadians are still very. There's a heightened level of concern about COVID. So I think for a lot of people, it is a they want to make sure that we do as much as possible, and they they've seen the effectiveness of mandates. That's one of the things that when when you compared the responses in in for example BC and Alberta. Uh, similarly sized populations. BC went with the mandate very quickly in public spaces. Alberta was very hesitant and endured yeah. a, a really a, a very difficult fourth wave. And I think people have seen it and then they attach this idea of, okay, the mandate works, so let's just do that. Whenever people don't yeah. want to do it, we'll just mandate it. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a certain element of people just want, they, they feel like they've done their part and they, they want everybody to do it, even as we get into, you know, 90% of eligible Canadians being vaccinated. There's still the the concern is still percolating. 55% of those vaccinated individuals say they're still worried about becoming sick themselves. So the, the concern has really not not died off entirely. Dave Korsinski with us, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute, uh, gauging, monitoring the mood of Canadians uh, when it comes to vaccine and employment. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Thank you very much. The Three Amigos Summit is going to be held this Thursday. This uh, started again after it was put on hold by uh, Donald Trump. This is a meeting with the Prime Minister and the Presidents of the United States and Mexico. Obviously, you could see this trading pack and how important it would be uh, to obviously have good, good relations uh, between all three of these countries. However, there's lots of uh, concern of protectionism and buy U.S. policies. What does that mean for our steel industry, our automotive industry? Let's bring Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, obviously, uh, it's good news to see these sorts of summits going on again, uh, but there is some concern that Biden is is moving along with uh, some of the protectionist uh, values that Trump had, and Canadians are concerned over this protectionism, what it means for the steel industry here, especially in Hamilton, and two uh, prospective EV plants that are being built uh, in Ontario as well. How does this, what about U.S. protectionism and the, the whole Buy America thing? One of the great urban legends, Scott, in our country, our country, is, is that the Democrats are our friends and the Republicans are our enemies. <laughs> because, you know, they sometimes elect kind of obnoxious people, disgusting obnoxious people like Trump. And so we think, well, we're not like him, and he's awful, and we're nice, and we're good, so therefore he's bad. And so the enemy of the Republicans, as the Dems, are our friends. Therefore, we love them, they love us, and everything is happy. Hmm. In fact, that's not true. And it's not just because of Trump. We can go back a third of a century, a third of a century, to Bill Clinton. He only got NAFTA through the Congress. Almost everybody in the Democratic Party voted against it, well over two-thirds. He got it through with Republican votes. Democrats have always been protectionist in modern times. What Trump did was he made it respectable for Republicans to be protectionist. So now you've got the Congress, and I'm really referring more to the House of Representatives, the 435 members elected every two years. They're far more protectionist, Democrat and Republican. And when 
when the Democrats ran in the last election, 2020, they're not stupid people. They learn. And they looked at the five states that put Trump in the White House in 2016. And they were the industrial states of the Midwest, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And the workers there have been devastated. Now, I'm not going to go academic wonky and tell you there were all kinds of studies that showed it wasn't because of free trade. A lot of people probably won't even believe me. So, So I'll set that aside. Many of the people there believed what Trump was saying, and people still to this day believe in the states that foreign countries are cheating. That was Trump's phrase. The Canadians are cheating, the Mexicans are cheating, the Germans are cheating, the Chinese are cheating. And so he put in uh, legislation, as we all know, to put Trump, uh, to put to tariffs, a uh, Trump signed tariffs on that. One more quick point, Scott, because this is very important. The first Buy American Law, so we think it's Donald Trump, right? It was passed by, I'm, not, I'm laughing, it's so ridiculous. It was passed by Herbert Hoover. Hmm. in the early years of the Depression. Like, that was three quarters of a century ago. That law is still on the books that gives the President of the United States the executive authority to do things that what Biden is doing and what Trump is do- did. And so my point being that I'm glad Mr. Trudeau's going down there to the Three Amigos. It's always better to jaw-jaw than to war-war, as Winston Churchill famously said. And it's always better to get a relationship with our largest partner going or try and get a better relationship. But anyone who thinks that they're going to go down and they're going to hug each other and, you know, and do nice things in the camera, uh, nice things before the camera, say nice words about each other, and therefore, presto, all the Buy American goes away, nonsense on steroids. So what does Those this mean for the... Away. What does this mean for the auto industry, Ian? And we hear that, you know, parts, uh, assembly vehicles, whatever, they could go back and forth across the border, all three borders, uh, several times before you get to a finished product. So right. how? Right. what's going to happen there? I don't want you to think that I'm sort of going in the opposite dire- direction, saying it's all over, we're finished, we're cooked, you know, doom, doom, gloom. I'm not suggesting that. I do think on some files, and I mean by that some markets, some industries, there will be wins and there will be some losses. Um, for example, you and I talked about Line 5 a while ago, two, three, mm-hmm. four weeks ago. And I predicted and I believed that Line 5 will not be shut down, no matter how extreme the governor of Michigan is, because not only will Line 5 hurt enormous numbers of Canadians in southern, uh, uh, southern Ontario, not that that's probably on her radar screen, but it's going to hurt an awful lot of people in the American Midwest in Michigan and play and around there. And I think that Biden looked at that and had his aides do his, their homework. And they said, President Biden, this is really going to whack a whole bunch of Americans, and you want them to vote for you next year in the off year. So he made the public speech, we're not closing down Line 5. I think the trick, and I thought I didn't mean a trick in a malevolent way or a nasty way, the, 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 key, the key for Canadians is not to say, oh, don't be unfair, don't be treated as badly, we're nice. That's a silly, idiotic argument. They've got to appeal to American self-interest and say, look, President Biden, if you go through with this, this is going to hurt Americans. Just mm. like closing down Line 5 was going to hurt probably several million Americans in the American Midwest. If you go and do this, this is going to hurt jobs. That because the, 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 the average part in a car the, uh, goes back and forth 17 times, the average vehicle between the U.S. and Canada. So he has to be the lobbyist, the, the premiers, the prime minister, has to appeal to American self 
interest. Mm. That this is going to hurt you, Mr. President. This is going to hurt you maybe in the next election in less than 12 months uh, down there, you know, first Tuesday in November. You yeah. know, when your Congress is up for re-election, your House. And, and that's what we have to do. So I'm not all pessimistic. I'm not doom and gloom. I think, and Mulroney said so the other day, the former Canadian Prime Minister said, you've got to get more aggressive. And I don't mean yelling and screaming and swearing and calling people names. Aggressive meaning, tell them bluntly. This is, do your homework. Mr. President, this is going to cost the following number of jobs, 10,000 jobs in Scranton or wherever. And then hit them right between the eyeballs, metaphorically speaking. You know, mm. with the data showing you are going to hurt Voters, they're not going to, they're going to turn against you and, and be blunt. Mr. B- President Biden, you're way down in the polls right now. You're doing yeah. very badly. You're not having a good year, Mr. Biden, President Biden. And we're here to help you. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the Three Amigos Summit coming up on Thursday. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, Earlier on today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Alberta Premier Jason Kenney revealed the details of a child care agreement uh, for a $10 a day daycare, which, of course, is a federal government promise. And it's in the process of going across the country now and trying to do a deal with uh, all of the provinces and such. And, um, you know, many I I think it was actually happening while I was on the air. So I'm, I'm sort of watching it with the sound off. But even watching the two together, it's like, my goodness, this is perhaps the most awkward and most uncomfortable news conference uh, I had ever seen because it's pretty obvious the two don't really care too much uh, for each other, yet uh, we're trying to uh, obviously be on a common front as they unveiled all of this. And now the pressure turns to Ontario saying, well, if they can do a deal, why can't we do a deal? Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks. I'm not sure if you saw the news conference or not, but boy, it seemed uh, kind of awkward. Are you are you surprised that the two of these uh, gentlemen came up with a deal today? Uh, well, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it's not them dating personally or anything like that. I mean, there's a mm. lot of room for their officials and governments to work it out and come to an agreement. But nevertheless, I mean, the Alberta government, uh, you know, has long been pretty skeptical about uh, some aspects of a national child care plan, and so... Yeah, it must have been a pretty hard negotiation. Uh, I mean, Alberta has long been in favor of having a substantial private sector option, and it looks like that was at least partially accommodated in this agreement. Why do you think Alberta is jumping on this now after, as you said, uh, resisting it for so long? Well, I mean, I think part of it is that they you know, made some moves in the direction of really broadening uh, their child care program under the previous uh, government, you know, that got rolled back a bit by uh, Jason Kenney, but I think there's, you know, a recognition of the popularity of that. So if ultimately the federal government is offering to, to really put in the money that allows the province to take the money they're spending, and, you know, rather than having, you know, a slapdash program of subsidies, uh, you know, to low-income earners, but in fact having a, a substantial, uh, you know, child care system, you know, that serves all, I mean, uh, it's pretty hard for a, for a premier and a province to say no. You know, again, especially as they've already taken steps and have seen how popular it has been. Uh, you just said something interesting then, uh, there. Is it is it impossible for a premier to say no to this? Uh, well, uh, if all the premiers said no, yeah, I think it would be possible. But when you get yeah. to the, you know the stage where we're at now, where it's uh, 
Ontario and New Brunswick holding out, it gets more and more difficult. I mean, you know, if we take the Ontario case, if Doug Ford was to say, no, we don't want this program in Ontario, you know, the net effect would be that all Ontarians, through their taxes, would be paying for these services in eight other provinces and not being able to enjoy it yeah. themselves. So yeah. at that point, it becomes really hard for a premier to say no. Uh, he did say earlier on today, this is going to happen. He just is waiting for a better deal. Um, are the other provinces getting something a little more sweeter than Ontario? Uh, not really. I, I mean, ultimately, the uh, you know money going to the provinces is tied to their you know the, the their share of the you know zero to twelve year old population in the country. Um, I mean, the the Ford government's argument is that that's not enough as a as a formula uh, because ultimately it costs a lot more to offer childcare in downtown Toronto than it does in Moncton, and so you know part of the argument there is that Ontario actually can't get to ten dollars a day without having to put in a fair bit of its own money. Uh, again, because the costs of offering childcare in Ontario are so much higher than in many other provinces. What about the uh, accusations that Quebec is getting more than the rest? Well, I mean, I think the issue there is Quebec is getting money uh, without the same strings attached in other provinces. And, uh, you know, the argument there largely is, of course, that Quebec already has a program in place. I mean, they decided to pay for it themselves. Uh, you know, so again, you know, if Ontario wanted those kinds of deals, uh, you know, it'd have to get into the time machine and go back and, and, you know, build one of these programs, which, you know, at various times in the 1990s and in the 2010s, uh, there were some, some moves in that direction, but ultimately they weren't taken. So, I mean, you know, ultimately to Quebec, get Quebec's deal, you need to have done uh, what Quebec did to build the kind of program that the federal government is now trying to extend to the other provinces. If it has that kind of program, why does it need more money then? Well, I mean, the argument is ultimately, uh, you know, if, if uh, Quebecers are paying taxes for a program, uh, you know, that looks the same as theirs, uh, you know, why shouldn't their program also uh, get the, you know, equivalent subsidy or the equivalent uh, federal cost sharing? Uh, Jason Kenney, uh, obviously we know where his approval ratings are of late. Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty safe to say he's he's had a dismal record when it comes to getting his province through uh, the global pa- uh, pandemic and such. Uh, does he have much of a choice here? I mean, obviously, as you said, if the federal government's handing out money, the provinces are going to stand in line and hold their hands out. Uh, on the other hand, does Jason Kenney need something like this to get out of the basement? I mean, I think it's useful for Jason Kenney uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, on the one hand, it's, uh, you know, money coming in <laughs> to support his government, and that will no doubt help with the budgetary situation. You know, but more and more, uh, you know, substantially, it's a kind of program that's going to appeal to voters who might be, you know, otherwise willing to say, uh, you know, maybe it's time to go back to try the NDP and Rachel Notley. So it's a kind of program that will appeal to a, uh, you know, a broader middle class uh, that, you know, maybe in the past has been comfortable with the Conservatives, but is asking some questions about their kind of competence or, you know, dedication uh, to a sort of, you know, less ideological population. So I think, you know, this is a way for Jason Kenney to try and, you know, paint himself as someone other than, you know, a somewhat narrow uh, ideologue and someone who can appeal ultimately to the voters in suburban Calgary, Red Deer and uh, Edmonton, uh, and keep them from you know, potentially moving back to the NDP in the next election. Obviously, this is a work in progress. What are the challenges rolling something like this out across the country? What, what will the challenges be in the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, I think the the main challenges will, on the one hand, uh, you know, be dealing with the increased uh, demand for childcare services. Uh, you know, when they're available, 
at that rate, uh, people may move from other forms of informal uh, care that they've been using, you know, into that sec- uh, session. So, I mean, getting, you know, the spaces is going to be one issue. Uh, you know, the other is actually to find a way to translate that money uh, into a way that you actually get to $10 a day, you know, in five years' time in that five-year horizon, because, you know, ultimately it's it's not clear. And here maybe uh, Doug Ford is right that uh, the amounts of money the federal government are promising uh, you know, aren't going to get you down to $10 a day in, in a place like Toronto where, you know, an infant space uh, can cost $22,000 a year. So, uh, you know, that may be a second issue, particularly in Ontario. What does $10 a day care look like? Is it, you know, a good facilities or a room with a bag lunch? I mean, should people be concerned about that? I mean, as part of these agreements, you know, one of the important uh, features is an emphasis on uh, quality and the educational aspect of this. So, you know, I suspect uh, the the point here is to end up with, you know, the kinds of regulated daycares that we're already seeing in the nonprofit sector uh, yeah. you know, around Ontario. So I don't think these spaces are really going to look uh, that different from what people are used to in terms of, you know, regulated center-based care. Peter Graff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about $10 a day daycare right the way across the country. Alberta just signing on, and uh, Ontario still waiting to do so. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. Interesting, we were talking to Ian Lee just a minute ago, and he mentioned Line 5, which we haven't talked about in a long time, uh, but I was just uh, looking up some information on it, and today uh, they took this to court in Michigan. Uh, as, as Ian said, the um, the Michigan governor trying to shut this pipeline down, like a half a million barrels a day going back and forth between the United States and Canada. Uh, they wanted to keep it in uh, Michigan court, uh, and the judge ruled, no, this is a federal case because it invokes a treaty uh therefore they think it's all going to be thrown out so here we go another um very unpractical idea which has divided people and really hasn't come up with a solution uh when it comes to these sorts of projects so uh again at the end of the day you just can't go shutting down pipelines uh because it affects people's lives and livelihoods we need a plan and uh, turning the tap off ain't the plan as uh, the mission governor uh, the michigan governor has uh, just found out we'll try to get more on this story uh coming up tomorrow all right 553 scott radley with us and of course the scott radley show coming up right after the news at six o'clock a columnist for your hamilton spectator he is with us now scott thanks for the time i hope you're well well i'm uh, i'm well as long as line five keeps running and our gas prices don't go up to four dollars a liter <laughs> You know, it's amazing how, I guess it was two months ago, this was a huge story. Well, it wasn't that huge a story until all of a sudden, I think people in Alberta said, hey, Ontario, are you aware that this is going to happen? And then, of course, it was all this stink coming out of Michigan, and it's like, no, you can't do that. And everybody seemed to have moved on. Uh, and it just seems odd to me that these sort of decisions, uh, these sort of um, uh, um, these these uh, movements are started without really any kind of thought where they all could end up. But well, yeah, it looks like it's going to go. Two things on this one. First, to the politicians that are trying to do this, um, maybe if they didn't have their own drivers and didn't have l- lavish wages and pensions that came later and all this kind of stuff, so they had to live like the normal person yeah. who had to drive to work or whatever, maybe this would mean something. And the other thing, to the people who are egging this on and saying this is a great idea, I got a great plan then. You lead the way. You heat your house this winter with solar or windmills. And the rest of us will use gas, and we'll see how long until you're back in the cradle joining us because you're freezing to death 
Remember what happened in Texas last winter or the winter yeah. before? Yeah, yep, yep. You know what? It's, it's, it's the idea of this is idiocy. As you just said, a plan. You don't, you, you don't fill in the well on your property and say, you know what? I'm going to live off of tree juice, uh, you know, <laughs> fruit juices from a tree, and I've yeah. just planted the tree. And it's still going to be 15 years till it produces fruit. You, you, know, you, you, you do something until you have a backup, and then you change it. But you know what? That, that seems too logical. And again, for the politicians that don't live in the same world that we do, um, you know, it, it means nothing. It means nothing. It's, it's, it's a theoretical concept, the idea of paying for stuff with an average person's wages. It's interesting. I was talking to an expert because we were talking about COP26 and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and everybody agrees there's an issue with climate change. But then from there, the discussion goes every single direction. And there's 500,000 different ways that we should be doing this, of which none, nobody agrees on. And I remember saying to this expert, why don't, since coal is such a major polluter, I mean, we've gotten off coal in Ontario here uh, for, for electricity and such. Um, why don't we just focus on coal? And here's what the answer was from the expert. He said, he said, well, it'd be great, but it's too late for that now. Uh, we can't just transition off a of cold. It's too late. We've got to do everything. And, and I'm thinking to myself, if you can't transition off of coal, how the hell are we supposed to transition off of every other fossil fuel? It's just, it's just ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And instead of, instead of coming up with an actual plan that works, it's just shut it off, shut it off, and tax the hell out of everybody. Like, that's going to solve the problem. Well, and you know what? Let's be honest. Um, anybody that listened to a word that came out of Glasgow after they flew in on 400 private jets and 30,000 people flew in when most of it could have been done by Zoom, anybody that listened to a word out of the mouths of those hypocrites is so gullible that they probably should seek help. These are people who are not practicing at all what they're going to tell us to preach. Not at all. And yet we're lining up like sheep saying, oh, yes, well, if they say we must do it, then we must do it. Have, as you said, have a plan. Don't just tell us no. Don't just tell us we're getting rid of this. Don't just, you know, crank up the... You know what it is, Scott? Scott, you have to learn to live with less. Yeah, I know. You tell your kids, you tell your kids that are the next generation, that they have to live with less. They ain't living with less. They're going to solve the problem and come out the other end even better and just by solving the often, issue. Those politicians from Canada alone, we won't even talk about the other ones, those politicians from Canada that went over there that are saying we have to live with less, those are the same federal politicians that voted themselves two pay raises during COVID? There you go. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks to Diana and Ted and Will for producing today. Coming up next, as I mentioned, the 6 o'clock news and then the Scott Radley Show. As always, we leave it to you the good CHML listener, to have the last word. And I think it's this time about Russia blowing stuff up in space. Zdravstvoite, it's Yuri over at the ISS. You know, space gives you perspective. You think that having leaves in yard is problem? No. Debris in your space station is problem.
Yeah, whatever he said. 